Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, Paul writes these words. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. For 17 years, Martin and Gracia Burnham were New Tribes missionaries in the Philippines. Martin was a jungle pilot who delivered mail and supplies to his fellow missionaries in remote locations. Gracia homeschooled her three kids, all of whom were born in the Philippines. Well, on May the 27th, 2001, while celebrating their anniversary at a resort on the island of Palawan, the Burhams were captured by a group of militant Islamic terrorists. And for over a year, 377 days to be exact, the Burnhams were held hostage. They were always on the move. They were being shuffled around, transported from one primitive jungle location to the other. Their ordeal came to an end on June the 7th, 2002. Originally, the Burnhams were two of 20 hostages. But over the course of the year, everyone was released except them and one other captive. It was becoming apparent to Martin that they might not make it out of this alive. So on the morning of June the 7th, after discussing this very real possibility with his wife, Martin suggested to Gracia, the Bible says to serve the Lord with gladness. So let's go out all the way. Let's serve him all the way with gladness. Well, she agreed. They prayed together. They recited some Bible verses to one another from memory. They sang praises to God. Then they lay down in their hammock to get some rest. At that moment, the shooting started. The Philippine military stormed the compound, raining gunfire on the abductors. Sadly, though, Gracia was hit in the leg with a bullet, while another round fatally struck Martin in the chest. 
Today, Gracia resides in Rose Hill, Kansas. And according to her website, if you ask about her life today, she will again quote you scripture. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. She continues to choose to serve the Lord with gladness. You know, it's interesting that even in the face of death, there was something in the heart of Martin Burnham that caused him to choose joy. He said to his wife, let's go all the way. Let's serve him all the way with gladness. The Holy Spirit stirred up his heart. The joy of Jesus became real to Martin, even in his most desperate hour. And this is also what the Apostle Paul came to know. You see, the book of Philippians is about joy at half-mast. As we noted last week, the flag of the British monarch, her royal standard, flies from the top of Buckingham Palace whenever the queen is in residence. Her royal flag is evidence that her highness is in the house. And likewise, joy is the evidence that Jesus is residing in us, that he's on the throne of our lives. And it's true Even in times of sadness, even in threatening and difficult times, when the flag flies at half-mast, joy still flies. And this is what Paul experienced during his incarceration in Rome and now writes in his letter to the Philippians. You see, Paul and his cohort, Timothy, they were occupying a prison cell in Rome. And understand what this meant in reality. We're not talking about three square meals a day, clean laundry, a bunk with a mattress, a library, a recreation yard, even cable television. No, think of a subterranean cave. The conditions that Paul experienced in Rome were more conducive for a population of rats than for men. I've been to Paul's Marmitium prison just off the famous forum in the heart of the ancient city of Rome. Today, it's below street level much like in ancient times. Originally, it was a cistern, a water reservoir, a pit that was turned into a prison. Prisoners were lowered down through a hole in the ground into what was a dungeon. Today, this prison is now a chapel, but it still has that damp, musky feel. My impression was, once a prison, always a prison. Try to picture Paul as he writes this letter to the Philippians. He's still wearing the tattered clothes that he wore during his shipwreck at sea. The cave he occupies is cold, it's damp, it's cramped. It's been months since he's bathed, but his body odor is not what you smell. For Paul and Timothy, they urinate, they even defecate in a wooden bucket that they keep over in the corner of their cell. Paul tries to rest despite this awful agony that he's going through, despite the fact that his legs and perhaps his wrists are bound in chains and shackles. Sleep only happens after total exhaustion. This is not a fun place to be. Nevertheless, there is joy in this prison. For Paul chooses joy. He rejoices. He takes joy. He grabs it and takes joy. He finds joy in Jesus. Here's a big truth we learn in Philippians. Often difficult circumstances occur we can't control, but we can choose our attitude. We can choose joy. 
When all of life goes wrong on the outside, we can look to Jesus and find the joy he brings bubbling up on the inside. Proverbs 23 verse 7 reads, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And this was what Paul reiterated to the Philippians. In this letter, 15 times he mentions our thought life. Another 10 times he mentions our remembrances. He understands how we think about a given situation determines our emotions toward it and our reactions to it. It's been said, we cannot change our heart, but we can change our minds. Whereas God can change our heart, but he won't change our mind. You see, that means that it's when I decide to think differently about a situation and to look for Jesus, to Jesus, for the joy that he promises, that's when God begins to work on the inside of my life to manufacture that joy. See, I can look at that flat tire on my way home from work, has a pain in the posterior. Or I can see it as a possible encounter with somebody who needs Jesus, or perhaps the mechanic who's going to patch the puncture later. Has it ever dawned on you that the waitress that gets assigned to your table, that the clerk who's handling your account, that the vet who's working on your pet needs the gospel you proclaim to believe and have pledged yourself to share? In fact, Martin and Gracious' catastrophic ordeal eventually led to the conversion of four of their captives, captors. Can you imagine? God uses tragedy for the furtherance of the gospel. See, Paul didn't believe in accidents. Paul believed in providence, that God is behind the scenes, that he's maneuvering circumstances for the advancement of the gospel. As I mentioned last week, we turn a real corner in our lives when we look at our inconveniences as God's opportunities. See, this is what happened with Paul's imprisonment. With any of us in this room today, we would have seen this at best, an unfortunate situation, at worst, a divine abandonment. Yet Paul saw it as an opportunity for the gospel. His time in jail gave him an amazing access to the, to the emperor's imperial guard. Roman soldiers were coming to Christ through Paul's witness. The gospel had come to the very heart of the empire, to Nero's own soldiers. In addition, Paul's incarceration had motivated other Christian pastors to step up their evangelistic efforts. Some shared their faith from pure intentions, others from selfish motives, but the gospel was being preached, and none of it would have ever occurred unless Paul had occupied this prison cell. In that he took great joy. Well, Paul continues to write to the Philippians in the wake of his incarceration, verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul knows that if the Philippians pray, the Lord is going to bring him deliverance. But this deliverance that he's thinking about isn't necessarily a release from prison. The Greek term is soteria, from which we get our word soteriology, which is the study of the doctrine of eternal salvation. The deliverance that's interesting Paul here isn't earthly parole or even an acquittal. He's not thinking of a verdict from Nero. 
Nero can't render the judgment that Paul desires. You see, Paul is hoping for a verdict from God. He wants the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. See, Paul wants to escape from his circumstances unblemished by doubt and by worry and by fear and by any hint of compromise or grumbling. Like Martin Burnham, Paul and Timothy want to leave this world serving the Lord with gladness. And to do so, according to verse 19, Paul and Timothy were depending on two things. The prayers of the Philippians and the supply of the Holy Spirit. Don't ever think that Paul treated prayer flippantly. He counted on prayer from his partners in the gospel. You know, it seems unfair to me that a diligent servant like Paul would rely on the prayers of friends hundreds of miles away, that his plight would be determined by their prayers, whether they remembered him or not. But apparently that was the case. And we need to realize that prayer is spiritual currency. When it changes hands, things happen. I hope you don't just say you're praying for each other because it's a Christian politeness, when in reality you have no real intention of praying at all. No, prayer is the most vital service that you can do for me and that I can do for you. And Paul is also trusting in the supply of the Holy Spirit. This is a resource that only Jesus himself can give us. See, the Holy Spirit is the means by which God works on the inside of our lives. He is the refreshing fountain that springs up. He is the empowering wind that blows through. He is the soothing oil that flows down. He is the sparkling wine we drink in. He is that consuming fire that melts and molds us and allows the potter to work on our lives and to fashion us as he pleases. Understand the boldness and the courage that Paul aspires to in these verses has nothing to do with his own resolve. He's trusting that the Spirit will make him strong. And so he shouts out in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. This past week I listened to bits and pieces of the testimony of former FBI director James Comey. Apparently, I wasn't the only one. It had a Super Bowl-sized viewership. What interested me was his admission of being intimidated in the Oval Office in front of the President of the United States. Comey spoke of being stunned. You know, he even admitted to acting cowardly. He didn't want to be, pretend to be a, quote, Captain Courageous. You know, as head of the FBI, James Comey is a pretty influential person in his own right. Yet his timidity in that moment reminds us of how difficult it is to speak truth to power. And especially when the person you're addressing has the power to determine your fate that can either have you killed or let you live. See, in light of that, imagine Paul before the Emperor Nero. Remember, Nero was a nutcase. He killed his mom on a suspicion of, of uh, betrayal, of treason. And now Paul is standing before this madman. Talk about intimidating. In comparison, James Comey endured what he endured was a drip in the bucket. Yet Paul's earnest expectation and hope 
was that he would never be intimidated. He would never back down from his faith, that he would never be ashamed of his Savior and the gospel. Paul calls it my earnest expectation and hope. His sincerest desire, his deepest longing is that he won't buckle under to the fear of death or to the pain of torture or to the intimidation and threats of people in power. Reminds me of Jesus' words, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul feared the right person. And that wasn't Nero. He was far more worried of offending God. And this is why he says, But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. This is what the daring Paul usually demonstrated. As always, he says, hey, this was the man who was stoned in Lystra, who was beaten in Philippi, who was run out of town in Thessalonica, who was arrested in Jerusalem, who even appealed his case to Rome while on trial in Caesarea. Hey, boldness was his habit. It was his modus operandi. Paul just wants to make sure that when the chips are down, when the pressure's on, he doesn't succumb to some outbreak of fear or some sudden wave of trepidation. Paul wants to make certain that he does what he's always done, and that's stand up for Jesus Christ. He says, pray for me, that I will hold fast to my earnest expectation and hope that nothing I shall be ashamed. I trust that's our earnest expectation and hope as well, that we'll never be ashamed of our Lord and the gospel. See, the point is this, far more important to Paul than his deliverance from jail was his witness for Christ. He wanted to shine brightly for Jesus until the last ray was extinguished from his candle. Whether he lives or dies, his passion is to display Jesus. Notice Paul wants Jesus to be magnified in his body. You know, there's, realize there's some things that we would never see, that we would never even know they existed if they weren't magnified. We don't make them any bigger. We just make them appear bigger. The bacteria, it's all around us. It can kill a person, but you can't see it with the naked eye. It's invisible to us without ample amounts of magnification. We need a microscope. Enormous stars, on the other hand, like the pistol star, are 100 times larger than our sun. This star gives, us as, gives off as much energy in 20 seconds as our sun generates in a year. It's a huge thing. Yet these giants of the universe could never even be seen with the naked eye. It was discovered with a telescope, magnification, the Hubble telescope. And this is what Paul is saying to us. Jesus is no longer seen with physical eyes, but he gets magnified in the lives of his followers, especially when their faith is tested and when they're called on to suffer for his sake. Paul desires that Christ will be magnified in him by life or by death. What matters to Paul is not living or dying, but putting Christ on display for all the world to see. His desire is for Jesus to be magnified in him. He says this, 
For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul could take joy in any situation, in life or in death, for all that mattered to him was Jesus. Paul's supreme desire was not to live or die or anything in between. The burning issue in Paul's life was not his goals and his comfort and his status and his future. Paul's utmost desire was for Jesus to be magnified in him. If that meant living, fine. If that meant dying, so be it. His chief concern was for Jesus to be glorified. I'll never forget visiting the ruins of ancient Philippi in modern-day Greece. We were privileged to stand on a mosaic floor of one of the very first church buildings ever erected. This octagonal floor dated back to 340 A.D. You see, prior to that time, churches met in homes. But when the Roman emperor Constantine embraced Christianity, believers across the empire started meeting openly and publicly. And apparently, those in Philippi were particularly bold in their witness for Jesus. Surely, there were still some lingering hostilities between the Christians and the Romans who were hanging on to paganism. Persecution remained a real threat. But the Philippians were the first to come out into the open. It was as if they were drawing a target on their backs. It was as if they were saying, hey, come and get us if you want. But we stand for Jesus. I believe they recalled Paul's words to their forefathers that he addressed in this letter years before. And they adopted his motto, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul understood that a person isn't ready to live until they're first ready to die. It's true. You know, when an author writes a novel, he knows from the beginning how he wants the book to end. It's impossible to develop the plot without knowing where you're going to want the road to lead, where it's actually going to come out. Paul approached life this way. He settled the ending first. He dealt with the final chapter from the outset. Thus, he was free to tackle the rest of his life head on, always pressing forward, never looking back. Paul reminds me of James Calvert, missionary to the Fiji Islands. On Calvert's first trip, his ship captain became nervous about the venture. The captain realized the dangers that were facing Calvert. I mean, door-to-door witnessing among man-eating cannibals is not the safest thing you can do. When they invite you over for dinner, that's not a good sign. (laughs) The captain told Calvert, he said, hey, You can't just walk in among these savages. You'll lose your life. That's when James Calvert replied, we died before we came. Paul had a similar attitude. If Paul lived, great. It was life with his Savior. If he died, greater still. It was life with his Savior minus the rocks and rods and and, and persecution and mobs and all the rest of the things that he suffered. I like verse 21 in the Living Bible, in the, uh, the paraphrase, the Living Bible. It says this, living means opportunities for Christ and dying, well, that's better yet. <laughs> Is that how you see death? That it's better yet? 
Often someone will ask, hey, how you doing today? You'll reply, well, I'm alive, but it sure beats the alternative. Well, no, it doesn't. Not according to Paul. It doesn't. Paul believed that the Christian's death is always preferable to life. It's always better yet. You remember Paul had been to the third heaven. He spoke of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he said that he heard things there that cannot be uttered, that are too marvelous. Hey, death for the Christian is always better yet. I believe that. Whether the person who just died was six months old or six years old or 16 years old or 96 years old. Hey, we don't ever mourn the person who dies in Christ. We mourn for ourselves. We're going to miss them. It's a loss in our lives, but he or she is in a better place. Hey, Paul knew that Christ had assured for him a positive outcome regardless of the verdict rendered by Nero. Whether he lived or died, his future was all about Jesus. Man, I hope you have a cause that transcends life and death. This is what makes living really worth living. To Paul, Jesus was not the top of a long list of priorities. He was the list. He wasn't just a slice in the pie of life. No, Jesus was the whole pie. Every other concern in his life was secondary to bringing glory to Jesus. Paul had eliminated all of the rivals. There was no other attraction competing for his affection. His whole heart belonged to Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer once wrote this. It's not that people don't want God. It's that people have things they want more than God. We are determined to have what we want most. What is it that you want in your life? Jesus died for you. He loves you with a boundless love. And he has given you, he has promised for you, he's paid for you, a heaven full of joy and blessing and excitement. It's all in store for you. What better way for you and I to spend the one and only life we have magnifying and bringing glory to Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul had friends. He had family. He had church. He had work. He had things that were important to him. But everything else in his life gained its significance as it related to Jesus. Here's a southern expression you'll know. Paul placed all his eggs in one basket. Jesus is all that mattered to Paul in the long run, and he's what made everything else matter in the short run. Nicholas von Zinzendorf, the father of German missions, once made the following statement about Jesus. He says, I have one enthusiasm. It is he, only he. When our goal is to bring glory to ourselves, life gets complicated. We become vulnerable to a whole host of problems. Doesn't take much to trip up my plans. Man, I can end up trapped in worry and fear. I become victimized by situations outside my control. But if I adopt Paul's motto, to live as Christ, to die as gain, I'm not worried about me. 
my image and my comfort and my convenience and my status and my success. No matter what happens to me, if Christ is glorified, I win in the end. If I live in the hut or in the mansion, if I'm the CEO or the grocery bagger, if my team wins by five touchdowns or loses by five touchdowns, as long as my life points people to Jesus, I am the victor. It doesn't matter if anyone notices me. There is a God in heaven who pays attention. Paul was caught up in someone far greater than himself. He would go anywhere, do anything, make any sacrifice needed to glorify Jesus. Hey, Paul gave up his whole life for Jesus, but ironically, no one ever lived a fuller and richer life than Paul. It's as Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. If your life has been growing dull and boring, if you've lost its thrill and adventure, if your thoughts are choked with worry and fear about stuff that won't matter 100 years from now, don't you think it's time for a change? I have a favorite scene from a movie. It's called The Wind and the Lion. Sean Connery stars in the movie. What a what an actor. Sean Connery plays the Razuli. He's a leader of the Berber bandits that fight against Western imperialism in the Moroccan deserts. And at the end of the movie, his army gets trounced by the Western coalition. Well, in the final scene, he and his right-hand man, they're on a horseback. They're riding on the beach. His sidekick mourns, Razuli, we've lost everything. We've lost everything. And with this roguish laugh, the Razuli, he rides off into the sunset and he shouts as he leaves. And I'll just let you listen to it right now. Great Razuli, we have lost everything. All is drifting on the wind, just as you said. We have lost everything. Sharif, is there not one thing in your life? that was worth losing everything for. <laughs> well, you might not have heard it, but let me, let me repeat it. He says, ah, isn't there one thing in your life worth losing everything for? I mean, what if I ask you that question? Do you have a big eternal purpose in your life? Or do you just flitter about with trivial stuff that's not going to make a bit of difference a year from now, let alone a hundred years from now? I mean, do you have a big deal in your life that dwarfs all the trivial concerns that dominate most people? I mean, a really big enchilada? If you're a Christian, you should. Paul understood there is a cause that transcends even life and death. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Let me ask you to fill in the blank. To live is... How would you fill in that blank for your life? To live is what? How would you answer? To live is work. To live is success. Friends, kids, sports, sex, hobbies, popularity, security. To live is what? How would you fill in that blank? With work that lacks fulfillment? 
Success that's just temporary. Friends that come and go. Kids that grow up and leave you. Sports that you can't play forever. Sex that leaves you empty and ashamed. Hobbies that grow boring. Popularity that's fickle. Security that's just an illusion. I mean, are these things really worth your one and only life? Listen to Paul's words in Philippians 1 verse 21. One more time. To live is Christ and to die is gain. You make that your motto. And like Paul, your life will be a grand adventure. Well, in verse 22, Paul lets us in on his own personal deliberations. He's been weighing out his options. He writes, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. There are some temporal blessings that come to us when we serve the Lord. Yes, heaven is better yet, but there are some rewards in the here and now. There are some reasons to hang around. Yet Paul is torn. He says, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Notice again, Paul considers death to be far better. He has no fear of death. And I think this should be true of all Christians. Death is no longer our enemy, friends. What was once a lily pad, a place to croak, is now a launching pad into glories galore. Hey, we might fear dying. You know, I might fear dying. You know, you don't want to die in a painful way. But that's different from fearing death. I might care about the how, but when I'm face to face with death, I'll have nothing to fear. You'll have nothing to fear. We'll simply be falling into the arms of Jesus. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, oh death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul continues, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. See, here was his choice, to go to heaven or to be a help. For Paul, death would be heavenly, but to live on in this life would be an opportunity for him to magnify Jesus. See, in heaven, we'll be at rest, but in this world, we're in the mix. Right now is our opportunity to make a difference in this world, to make a difference in the lives of the folks that we love. See, we're building a legacy of faith, We're making a case for Christ, but there will come a time for all of us when the building will cease, when our case will be closed. That means we need to make the most of this life as we have to live it. He says, in being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul's been deliberating his desires, but now he draws his conclusion. He is confident that he'll be released. His time isn't over. His work isn't done. And Paul's interactions with the Philippians will continue. And this had huge ramifications for the church in Philippi. Understand this. They are the reason that Paul is postponing heaven. It's a big deal. What if Paul wrote to us and said, hey, because I love you guys, I'm staying here. I mean, what if we were the reason that he's postponing heaven? Paul could have had paradise. Instead, he chooses Philippi. 
<laughs> Paul delays his crown. He endures his cross so he can spend time with his church. Wow. That, what, what, what did that mean? It must have meant so much to Lydia, to that slave girl who'd been saved, to the jailer and his family, to those two squabbling sisters, Euodia and Syntyche, to Epaphroditus and Clement and, and a host of others who were members in this church. It meant that Paul loved them and that he valued them immensely, that he would postpone heaven in order to minister to them. But it also meant that they had a responsibility not to waste Paul's commitment, but to be a worthy investment of his gospel effort. This is why Paul tells them, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul is like a father encouraging his children to make him proud. He wants them and us to stand fast and to stand together and to stand up for the gospel. The word that Paul uses that gets translated striving speaks of an effort that drips with blood, sweat, and tears. It's an effort that goes beyond exhaustion. Paul is saying, hey, leave it on the field for the gospel. You know, high school football is a dreadful sport. I played it, I know. I mean, you practice five days a week for 16 weeks just to play 10 games. It just doesn't make sense. You dress out in heavy equipment. You go through rigorous exercises. You endure the summer heat. You take a beating every day. You risk getting injured. All the while, your buddies are hanging out by the pool with the girls chilling out. And you do this for what? You get zero pay. You get little recognition. Here's why I did it. On those Friday nights, something special would happen. When it all came together, when it all clicked, when the team succeeded, when the guns sound and the scoreboard read that you're on the winning end, there was a joy that swelled up inside. There was hugs and high fives all around. It was a grand celebration. It was a sense of accomplishment. I mean, you were part of something bigger than yourself. That's a big deal to a 16-year-old boy. And all of a sudden, all the practice and striving and agonizing was worth it. And this is the same joy you experience when you are committed to gospel-oriented people, to a church that lives and breathes and labors for the gospel's sake. You come week after week. You labor with little or no recognition. You, you put up with the heat of conflict and you risk getting hurt. But why? Why do you do it? Because when it all clicks, when everybody comes together, you get this heavenly sense that God has been glorified. It causes incredible joy. You've been part of something bigger than yourself. And your life feels richer for it. You've gained a sense of significance, and you come back roaring for more. There's not many places in this world you can find that. Joy comes when we stand fast and stand together and stand up for Jesus. And this is how we push back against our enemies. Verse 28, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation 
and that from God. See, when Christians refuse to cower and be intimidated, when we take a stand and stand together, we incriminate this world and those who stand against us. See, finding our purpose is proof of their lostness. Our faith in the gospel confirms our salvation and it exposes the world's doubts and lies and unbelief. Well, I love how chapter 1 concludes. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Now, I'm not sure these Philippians were mature enough to see persecution as an honor bestowed. But that was certainly Paul's perspective. Can you imagine that you've been granted to suffer for Christ? You've been given this favor. You've been given this honor. The word granted literally means graced. Paul is saying you've been graced or favored by God with suffering. See, in Paul's mind and even in the early church, it was always an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake. You recall in Acts chapter 5, after the apostles had been tried for preaching the gospel and reluctantly released, we're told, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. See, even persecution was a reason to take joy. See, the Christian wears two badges of honor. First is our salvation, but second is our suffering. It is an honor to both believe in Jesus and be bruised for Jesus. Yet this is so far into our ears. You got a blank look on your face. What are you talking about? It's an honor to suffer. Are you kidding me? You know, and, and, and it's because we, we hear so little of this. The message from our pulpits today, prosperity is your birthright. Prosperity is the birthright of the believer, not persecution. Salvation, not suffering. You know, how, how shallow. Jesus died for us. What an honor it is for us to suffer a little for him. John Calvin once wrote, Oh, if this conviction were fixed in our minds that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, what progress would be made in the doctrine of godliness. Hey, the fact that we resist such truth is what perpetuates our immaturity. It's true, joy is the flag that flies from the heart where Jesus resides, but at times, that flag flies at half-mast. Joy comes when the outcome is not about life or death, about suffering or blessing, but when life, when a life is solely fixed on Jesus, when to live is Christ and to die is gain. 